Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill. On September 26, 2022, at approximately 2.03 a.m. local time in the Baltic Sea, off the southeast coast of the Danish island of Bornholm, the Nord Stream 2 underwater pipeline experienced blasts on its Line A. Danish warplanes circled above assessing the situation and monitoring a bubbling pool emerging from the sea. Approximately 17 hours later, at 7.04 p.m., just as the twilight was extinguishing over the sea and roughly 70 kilometers northeast of the early morning blasts, two explosions ripped through Line B of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, creating craters approximately 250 meters apart. Seven seconds later, Line A of the Nord Stream 1 is rocked by two detonations, also roughly 250 meters apart. The only so-called string of the Nord Stream pipelines left intact was the easternmost one, Line B of the Nord Stream 2. It didn't take long for Swedish seismologists to calculate that the massive blasts were not caused by an earthquake or some other act of nature. Whatever happened deep beneath the sea was the work of human beings and powerful explosives. And so a mystery began. Who were these people? Why did they conduct what appeared to be surgical and sophisticated strikes against a massive and profitable piece of Russian infrastructure, whose primary function was to provide gas to Germany and other European markets. For what state or cause were these people working? Within hours, political leaders from both Sweden and Denmark, the two nations closest to the blast sites, told the public that this was no accident. It was a deliberate act of sabotage. Eventually, a consensus formed among all affected countries that whoever did this was likely sponsored by a nation-state. Russia began accusing Western nations, initially suggesting it was the work of the British. The U.S. and its allies sought to cast the spotlight of blame on Russia. In any case, no one offered any concrete evidence to support their theories and accusations. From the beginning, the Nord Stream pipelines, which are majority-owned by the Russian consortium Gazprom, was a contentious project to say the least. It was subject to sanctions under President Donald Trump, and then as Russia began its preparations for an invasion of Ukraine, it rose to a high-priority level in the Biden White House. Ukraine viewed the pipeline as an economic engine to fuel Russia's war machine, and senior U.S. officials, including President Joe Biden himself, 
began to make ominous threats about the future of the pipeline should Vladimir Putin move forward with his invasion. On February 7th, 2022, two weeks before the Russian invasion, Biden stood next to German Chancellor Olaf Scholz in the East Room at the White House. If, uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there, will be, uh, we, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. What do, what, how, will you, how will you do that exactly, since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. Undeterred by these apparent threats from Washington, Vladimir Putin went ahead with what he called the special military operation in Ukraine. In the summer of 2022, with the war in Ukraine raging, all of the nation-states that might arguably have a motive for blowing up the pipeline were very active in the Baltic Sea. The U.S. and NATO conducted naval war exercises, known as Baltops 22. Ukrainian naval forces trained alongside British teams in undersea mining and demining exercises, including in the use of sophisticated underwater drones capable of planting explosive devices deep on the seabed. In June, Russia conducted its own exercises in the sea, where it has a port in Kaliningrad. Poland ran its own exercises, codenamed Reckon 22 or Shark 22, in the sea in late September, just days before the Nord Stream pipelines were sabotaged. After the pipelines blew, the world community largely split into two major camps, those who suspected that Moscow was behind the attacks against its own pipeline, and those who believe that the U.S. and or its allies did it. Germany, Sweden, Denmark, and Russia all launched official investigations, and the U.S. became remarkably quiet about the matter. Mostly, the White House would say it was supporting the Swedish, German, and Danish probes. And then, on February 8th, the legendary investigative reporter Seymour Hirsch published a lengthy, incendiary story on his newly launched Substack. The piece, which cited a single anonymous source with seemingly full-spectrum knowledge of the inner workings of the plan, boldly asserted that the United States had blown up the pipeline in an operation directly authorized by the President of the United States. Hirsch alleged that a clandestine working group consisting of senior U.S. officials, as well as representatives from a range of U.S. agencies and a foreign government, were in on the plot. It was U.S. divers, with support from Norway, who planted the explosives. They did so, according to Hirsch, using the public cover of last summer's NATO Baltops training exercises. While the story was met with almost total silence and was ignored by most major U.S. media outlets, Hirsch's story reverberated around the world. It did not take long for Russia, including Vladimir Putin himself, to endorse Hirsch's narrative as the definitive truth of what happened in the Baltic Sea last September. I now give the floor to the representative of the Russian Federation. Mr. President, the situation is that on the 8th of February, thanks to the well-known American investigative journalist, the Pulitzer Prize winner Seymour Hirsch, we found out not only uh, that the U.S. did it, but how they did it with the involvement of their NATO ally, Norway. 
So now we are extremely certain not only who, but how the gas pipeline was blown up. The Biden administration issued sweeping denials of Hirsch's story, saying the U.S. government had absolutely no connection whatsoever to the attacks against the Nord Stream. The spokesperson for the National Security Council, Adrian Watson, told me that Hirsch's story was a, quote, totally false concoction, and she added, we can say categorically that the United States was not involved in the Nord Stream explosions in any way. We continue to support efforts with our allies and partners to get to the bottom of what happened. But behind the scenes, a complex dynamic was unfolding. Both German and Swedish investigators were far from convinced that either Russia or the U.S., for that matter, had conducted the operation. Last June, two months before the Nord Stream explosions, the CIA had reportedly offered German intelligence and other European governments a, quote, strategic warning of a potential plot to blow up the pipeline. According to the Wall Street Journal, quote, the warning included information about three Ukrainian nationals who were trying to rent out ships in countries bordering the Baltic Sea, including Sweden. On March 8th, some of these details broke out into the mainstream when both the New York Times and the German publication Die Zeit published exposés on a private boat that had been rented by a Polish-registered company owned by two Ukrainians. Die Zeit, citing German law enforcement sources, asserted that the ship was loaded with explosives and diving equipment and set sail from a German port in the Baltic Sea. Perhaps this ship carried the people who did the operation, or maybe they were connected to the plan. Only speculation has been offered since those reports emerged. This brought a new element to the fore, the possible involvement of what the New York Times labeled a, quote, pro-Ukrainian group. For his part, Cy Hirsch claimed those stories were part of an elaborate plot by the U.S. government to discredit his explosive story. While authorities in Germany, including the country's defense minister, suggested that the boat, called the Andromeda, could be part of a false flag intended to conceal the identity of the actual saboteurs. Ukraine has emphatically denied it had anything to do with the Nord Stream attacks. But last week, new evidence emerged that should spark scrutiny of Kiev's denials. In a story based on top-secret U.S. documents shared on a Discord server, the Washington Post reported that this past February, President Volodymyr Zelensky had suggested blowing up a different Russian pipeline, this one servicing NATO and EU member Hungary. This is a story that is not going to disappear anytime soon. My guest today calls the sabotage of the Nord Stream Pipeline the biggest whodunit of the century. James Bamford is one of the most respected experts on U.S. intelligence operations and covert action. He's the author of several best-selling books, including The Puzzle Palace, a report on NSA, America's most secret intelligence agency, and The Shadow Factory, the ultra-secret NSA from 9-11 to the eavesdropping on America. Bamford's most recent book is Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. Last week, The Nation magazine published a fascinating story by Bamford in which he argues that Ukraine and Poland should be viewed as the top suspects in the sabotage and that the U.S. government almost certainly knows exactly who bombed the pipelines. That story is titled, The Nord Stream Explosions, New Revelations About Motive, Means, and Opportunity. 
James Bamford joins me now. Jim, thanks so much for being here with us on Intercepted. Great. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I want to begin with a quick reminder or walk through recent history with people. Lay out, James, the significance of the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines before they were blown up. Well, the uh, Europeans really wanted these pipelines because it would make natural gas quite a bit cheaper. The Ukrainians didn't want it because the natural gas had been going through their pipeline and they were getting a um, fee for it. So the Europeans wanted it, the uh, Ukrainians didn't want it, and the Russians were happy to bypass Ukraine and lower the price for the Europeans. So everybody was pretty happy except for the uh, Ukrainians pretty much. And you lay this out in the article that you wrote for The Nation magazine, but talk about the Trump administration initially imposing sanctions and sort of what was going on in the few years leading up to the destruction of the pipelines. Well, the concern of the uh, U.S. administration, uh, the Trump administration, as well as Biden and, and so forth, was the um, the fear that by having a direct pipeline from Russia to Europe, that Europe would become a sort of captive of Russia, that if Russia wanted to, it could turn off the pipeline when it wanted to, and then sort of use it as a sort of a blackmail tool. Uh, you either do this or we'll turn off the pipeline. So there was a worry in Washington and other places that the pipeline would be used as a uh, tool for leverage uh, to get uh, the Russians what they wanted. And that was one of the key reasons that the U.S. was against it and one of the key reasons that the uh, U.S. wanted to put sanctions or did put sanctions on the uh, building of the, the pipeline. What do we know about various military operations and training exercises that were taking place in the period, the months directly leading up to the destruction? Because there's, in in Seymour Hersh's self-published expose on Substack, he says that the explosive devices were planted in the summer during the Baltops operation, which were U.S. and its allies doing joint operations, mining and demining operations in the Baltic Sea and other training. But also Russia was doing exercises um, in that same calendar year, as well as Poland also was running its own training exercises. So a lot of focus uh, in Hirsch's piece is placed on the U.S. and its allies doing training operations. Independent researchers and open source intelligence researchers from Bellingcat and others have focused on the movement of Russian ships uh, in the sea. But in your in your piece, you sort of place quite a bit of emphasis on Ukraine's participation in some training exercises. But first, talk about all the kind of competing exercises there and how they may have contributed to the events that we saw take place in September of 2022. Yeah, for many years, NATO has been using the Baltic as a training ground for a lot of naval exercises with NATO and and, uh, other countries on the Baltic use it also. And it's very common for Russian ships of various sorts to be on the Baltic since they uh, abut the Baltic. They're one of the countries that uh, have ports on the Baltic. So it's not uncommon to see Russian ships on the Baltic. And uh, the U.S. uses it a great deal for uh, training in in mines, uh, uh, how to find mines, how to lay mines, and how to destroy mines. So it's a very popular area to um, 
have a great deal of naval exercises in all kinds of training styles, whether you're doing it on uh, undersea warfare or whether you're doing above-sea warfare or whatever you're using. The Baltic is a very good place to do that. Right. And the Russians have their port at Kaliningrad. Poland has a large uh, swath of territory. Germany has a large swath of territory. This covers down toward the southern end of the sea. And then you have these, they're not necessarily the territorial waters of Denmark or Sweden, but you have these economic zones where they have sort of preferential option and control over some of those waters. And the areas of the Nord Stream 1 and 2 that were targeted in this operation fell in the zones that are in the sphere of influence of Denmark and Sweden. Seymour Hirsch is asserting in his piece that it was U.S. Navy divers being backed by Norway that place these explosives. Now, you don't offer uh, an endorsement or really a critique of Seymour Hersh's piece in your article in The Nation, but instead you sort of probe a different angle here that involves the possibility or at least the motive and um, capability that may have been possessed by Ukraine and perhaps Poland. Talk about that line of argument that you're putting forward and why we should scrutinize the potential involvement of Ukraine or the NATO EU ally of the United States, Poland, in this operation? Well, I disagree with Seymour Hersh's article because it didn't make much sense to use divers. I mean, divers are what you might have used years ago, but you you wouldn't use them today. And then he says it wasn't, well, he makes a, a big deal about how talented these divers are from the United States. And then all of a sudden he says, we were also using divers from Norway, which didn't make any sense. If ours are so good, then why are we using divers from Norway? And if it wants to be, you know, if you want to be secret, then why are we involving Norway anyway? We, the United States doesn't have a capability to blow up a pipeline. I mean, it's really not that complicated. And, and most of uh, the activity today is undersea. That's where the focus is uh, on undersea drones, undersea warfare, you don't have to have big ships going into the uh, area and putting divers down and having a lot of gear for uh, bringing them back up and so forth because of the the pressures and so forth. So using undersea drones that are weaponized uh, or that can lay a weapon alongside the pipeline and they could be set to go off at a different time, that was that made much more sense to me, having researched a lot of this than sending uh, divers down. So that's what I focused on. And then in terms of, uh, I, I didn't really buy the idea that the United States was behind it because you know, I have sources also. I mean, I've been doing books for a long time, uh, all focused on the intelligence community. I've been writing about intelligence for a very, very long time. And everybody I've talked to discounts that because uh, a number of the people that I talk to that I deal with uh, would have been in a position to at least have heard something about it, and nobody did. So that's one of the key reasons I went to focus on Ukraine. And what I found was that Ukraine had the uh, the motive, the means, and the opportunity to, to do this. They certainly had the, the motive. They were going to lose a lot of money by having the gas bypass Ukraine and go directly to uh, Germany. So they were going to lose a lot of money. And at other times, they were very worried that uh, this was going to 
pretty much weaponize uh, Russia. Russia was going to be able to use the pipeline as a weapon to um, get Europe to do what it wanted to when it wants to, or they could turn it off and turn it back on again. So they were afraid of that. They had the means, motive, and opportunity. The means that they had were undersea drones. I mean, they have very powerful undersea drones. This Toloka that they built, it, it's got a night uh, vision camera, sonar, a hydrofoil, a hydrophone rather. It's got GPS autopilot. It's got a periscope type device. And uh, the top of the line model can go 2,000 kilometers underwater and carry 11,000 pounds of uh, explosives. And then they've got a smaller drone that can carry about 1,100 pounds of explosives. And that's actually what NATO said was probably used on the uh, pipeline was about 1,100 pounds of explosives. So, you know, you put a lot of those things together. And then they also had the opportunity, which was the... um, you had a number of members of the uh, Ukrainian Navy that were being trained in that same spot, basically, in undersea warfare on uh, using drones and, and planting and and uh, retrieving undersea mines and so forth. So you had the, the Ukrainian Navy right there. They were working on undersea warfare at that time, being trained by uh, the U.S. and the Brits on how to do undersea warfare, use uh, drones and so forth. And then the Brits actually gave the Ukrainians six drones uh, for free. Just here's six drones. And the um, head of the British Navy basically said, well, he said, uh, the expert skills being taught here will help Ukraine and then, quote, repel Russian aggression. So they had the means, uh, motive, and opportunity, and that was one of the reasons I pretty much focused on on them as opposed to the United States. The United States had uh, a motive, but it would have been far more complicated. I mean, Seymour Hersh makes this argument that uh, they used the divers so they didn't have to go to um, Congress to admit that they were doing a covert operation. I mean, that just didn't make any sense to me. If you're going to launch an act of war against Russia, Europe, and NATO uh, secretly, that's a covert operation. I don't care how you slice it. So that just didn't make sense to me. And I didn't think that the U.S. would do it. It was just too bold a, uh, a, th- a thing to do. And the head of the CIA is a guy that uh, Bill Burns, who um, in the past has spent a lot of time uh, trying to get the United States to not build NATO very close to Russia. And he said there was a red line this years ago. I mean, when he was ambassador to uh, to Russia saying that Ukraine was a red line. You just don't move NATO into Ukraine. So he didn't seem like the per- kind of person that was going to blow up a pipeline going to Europe. So there were a lot of factors that I didn't agree with, with the Seymour Hearst piece. Of, uh, I've known Seymour Hearst, Cy Hearst for you know, decades, uh, friends, but I don't necessarily agree with everything he writes, and I'm sure he doesn't agree with everything I write. I want to return to this question of of the U.S., because one of the um, other issues that you raise is the vast surveillance capabilities that the United States has in that region to track noises and geographic positioning of various ships. But before we do that, I just want to drill a little bit deeper down into this question of Ukraine having the means. And in your piece, you write, by 2022, Ukraine certainly had a motive to, quote, put an end to Nord Stream 2. 
and beyond public view, it also had the means to carry out such an operation. One place with experience in blowing up things that Ukraine wanted gone is the SZRU's sister military spy agency, the main intelligence directorate, MID. You say, in addition to its SZRU and MID covert intelligence organizations, Ukraine has also secretly developed a very advanced undersea warfare capability. A month after the Nord Stream blast, Ukraine's 73rd Special Maritime Operations Center launched an unprecedented large-scale attack against Russia's Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol using both unmanned aerial vehicles and unmanned undersea vehicles. Talk about those intelligence agencies in Ukraine, their history, particularly in the Russia war, and why you think their potential involvement in the blowing up of the Nord Stream bears scrutiny. Well, they've got a very sophisticated intelligence service. They've always needed it because of Russia being on their border. So they've developed a very sophisticated uh, capability when it comes to intelligence. One of their intelligence organizations is the... uh, MID, the Military Intelligence Division. And um, yeah, as you mentioned, they are, as I wrote in the piece there, they have a very sophisticated underwater capability too. So a month after the uh, uh, attack on the Nordstrom pipeline, Ukraine launched a very powerful attack on Russian ships in Sevastopol. It was done with airborne drones and also undersea drones. They launched this rather remote attack, attack with a remote vehicles, uh, airborne vehicles and undersea vehicles. So it was extremely sophisticated uh, a way of attacking. It's a country that borders the Black Sea, and they've developed these capabilities because they have to. I mean, they're worried about the Russians, and uh, they wanted to build a undersea capability to attack Russian ships, and drones were, were a key way of doing it. So they have some of the most sophisticated drones in the world, I think, uh, at least the ones I've seen. If they attacked the pipeline, I think these uh, weapons that they had, these drones, would have been very useful. Uh, They carried more firepower than you need to blow up the pipeline, and they they could uh, be very stealthy. You know, over the weekend, uh, the Washington Post, which has emerged as uh, probably the main or the leading news outlet in reporting out the leaks from the Discord server, and we did a show on on uh, those leaks a few weeks ago. Um, but this, uh, there's a young um, airman who is accused of having shared hundreds of uh, classified U.S. documents, including some very sensitive documents detailing what appears to be real-time intelligence involving the the war in Ukraine. And one of the most recent revelations published by The Post this weekend had to do with an alleged threat that Volodymyr Zelensky made of blowing up a different Russian pipeline. And I'll just read from uh, the Washington Post piece uh, over the weekend. It says, quote, in a meeting in mid-February with Deputy Prime Minister Yulia Sverdenko, Zelensky suggested Ukraine, quote, blow up the Soviet-built Druzhba pipeline that provides oil to Hungary. Quote, Zelensky highlighted that Ukraine should just blow up the pipeline and destroy likely Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's industry, which is based heavily on Russian oil, the document says. Now, this is interesting in light of everything that you're saying, but also when you compare that kind of a statement to statements that Cy Hirsch references from U.S. officials 
in the weeks and months leading up to the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline, um, where you have Biden saying, I promise it's going to be ended, and you have others that you could read into it that they're basically saying they're going to blow it up, or you could read into it that they're saying, we're going to put an end to this by economic or diplomatic or, or other means. But this specific revelation now that Zelensky actually has been speaking specifically about destroying pipelines that are being utilized by European Union members and NATO members. You know, we would never have known this uh, if those documents weren't leaked. So you just wonder how much more the United States knows about what has been going on with, with Ukraine and with uh, Zelensky, for example. But yeah, to, to actually make that statement is, and obviously he, he made that statement after the uh, Nordstrom pipeline was blown up. So, I mean, it's almost like he would say, uh, well, you know, we can do it. We just did it or whatever, because here it is a Soviet built pipeline uh, providing oil to Hungary, which is a NATO member. And, uh, you know, the pipeline that got blown up was a Russian pipeline providing natural gas to Europe. So, you know, if you can make a a threat or a you know a suggestion that maybe we could blow up one of the obvious uh, responses well maybe you blew up the other one also in terms of blowing up something big the MID the military intelligence division uh, has been accused of blowing up the Kerch Street bridge that's an enormous bridge that uh, was taken down by explosives and uh, those are the kind of explosives that you would need if you're going to blow up the pipeline so Again, that goes along with my whole thesis that the Ukrainians had the means to to do this. They had the means, the opportunity, and the uh, the motive. So that's why I think they should be taken uh, more seriously. In the past, most of the people looking at this have thought that they were divers going down from the United States or from other countries. But it just doesn't make sense to have the United States get involved with this if you have Ukraine that has a far bigger motive and, and, and an opportunity. In the immediate aftermath of the destruction of these pipelines, there was quite an interesting set of responses from a variety of governments around the world and also non-responses. I mean, the United States was tended to sort of imply that it was possible, if not likely, that Russia was behind this. Zelensky himself certainly came out very early and all but directly accused Russia of blowing up its own pipeline. You had quite a uh, a sort of moment of investigation, waiting. The pile-on, though, then intensified that this must be Russia that did this. That took on a, a, a dominant role in a lot of the media coverage, particularly emerging from some of the Nordic countries. But Sweden's prosecutor, who is investigating this, and you quote this um, in the piece, you point out that Mats Lundqvist, the senior prosecutor leading Sweden's investigation into the sabotage, placed no credibility in such a charge. Quote, it's my job to find those who blew up Nord Stream, he said. Do I think it was Russia that blew up Nord Stream? I never thought so. It's not logical. Talk about that initial period immediately following the destruction of the pipeline and how the narrative started to build that Russia had blown up what is effectively its own very expensive piece of profitable infrastructure. One of the first people to come out and say that was Zelensky. Uh, he didn't waste any time blaming the Russians for it because it would have been a win-win for Zelensky. Uh, first of all, the 
pipeline gets blown up, he doesn't have to worry about it anymore. And second of all, the uh, Russians will get blamed. And if they got blamed uh, for it, then uh, there is a good possibility that more sanctions would go towards Russia. So he had a very good motive for blaming Russia and the U.S. Uh, at first went along with that for obvious reasons, because we were supporting Zelensky. But pretty soon, I mean, people started thinking, well, didn't the Russians just build this pipeline? I mean, all you have to do is turn it off. If you don't want the, the gas to go to Europe, why do you blow up your own pipeline? Didn't make any sense to, to me. It certainly didn't make any sense to the uh, chief investigator in Sweden, uh, Mr. Lindquist. I think that disappeared after a few weeks. I, I don't think people are talking about that anymore. And then, again, Cy Hirsch was the only one to sort of point to the United States, which, again, didn't get picked up by anybody because it didn't, there was no evidence there. And Cy really didn't have any really source. I mean, he had some kind of a source there that didn't really sound like he knew much. Uh, they got the place where the meeting was supposed to be taking place wrong. They said it was the president's intelligence advisory board at the top of the um, what they called the old executive office building, which changed its name 20 years ago, to the Eisenhower executive office building. And actually, the foreign intelligence advisory board is about a block and a half down the street at the new executive office building. So there were a lot of mistakes there. He had ships that were there that shouldn't have been there and so forth, or weren't there that should have been there. And Anyway, it was a very confusing um, piece to read. So I don't think there was much credibility in terms of the U.S. doing this, and I don't think there was any credibility of the Russians doing this. So it narrows down your your suspects, and uh, the two that I thought were most likely were the uh, Ukrainians, based on the comments that Zelensky and his uh, top lieutenants have been talking about. They were talking about ending the pipeline the same way that uh, the Biden administration was. They were constantly saying that uh, this pipeline has to go. And the other uh, group was the uh, the Poles, the Polish government. They were equally adamant. Matter of fact, the prime minister of Poland and the prime minister of Ukraine jointly wrote a, uh, a long piece in uh, Politico not long before the uh, the bombing and, and uh, saying that the basically that the uh, you know, we should do away with those uh, with the pipelines. They've got to go. It was perfect timing, actually, for, for Poland because the day after the explosion of the Nord Stream pipeline, as the uh, bubbles were still pouring to the surface, the Polish government uh, christened their own pipeline, the Baltic pipeline. They had a big ceremony, and uh, they were very happy to do away with the uh, the Nordstrom pipeline because it would have been competition. This way, they get rid of the, the Nordstrom pipeline. At the same time, they get their own pipeline coming in with uh, with cheaper gas. So it was very ironic to see uh, on the very next day after the blowing up of the of the pipeline, the uh, Nord Stream pipeline, that you know you get the inauguration of the uh, Baltic pipeline uh, to the happiness of the uh, Polish government and so forth. And so you get the Polish government and the Ukrainian government were the two people most pleased by the uh, explosion at the Nord Stream pipeline. So, Jim, I want to talk more about Poland's position here. In your story, you describe these well-documented provocations against the construction of Nord Stream 2 and the operation of Nord Stream 1 
by Polish forces. And you write that in early April 2021, quote, Andrzej Minin, a senior official at the Nord Stream 2 AG Consortium, charged that the Fortuna and other ships involved in the project had been the target of, quote, regular provocations, including the penetration of the one-and-a-half-mile security perimeter surrounding the worksite. You quote him saying, we're talking about clearly planned and prepared provocations using fishing boats as well as warships, submarines, and aircraft to hinder the implementation of the economic project. This is perhaps an unprecedented case of its kind in history, he said. And you describe these other incidents of Polish government vessels coming in and attempting to ram Russian vessels that are working on their pipeline that they had a legal right to be constructing in the uh, Baltic Sea. Well, Poland isn't very far from the pipeline, and it was very easy for Poland to uh, send uh, aircraft. Even uh, there was a report of one submarine um, penetrating the uh, security zone. The submarine, for example, uh, what they were suspecting was that uh, the submarine was going to try to uh, destabilize the pipeline ship. The pipeline ship was a very, very big ship, and it had 12 anchors. And and so if you disrupt the anchors, then uh, you're going to disrupt the pipeline. They were very, very angry because the Russian ship that was there uh, was completing the last, I think it was 75 kilometers of the uh, pipeline. So once that ship completed its work, the last 75 kilometers of it, uh, that was it. Then the pipeline is finished and it's a fait accompli. So the idea was that they were going to uh, try to harass the, uh, the ship or try to do something to keep uh, the ship from completing the, the operation. And that's why the Polish Air Force was sending these uh, uh, anti-submarine aircraft over it. There was the uh, submarine at the bottom that they detected penetrating the uh, mile and a half zone around the uh, around the ship, and and then the what uh, looked like almost a collision between the fishing boat and the uh, pipeline ship. So, so there were all these factors, and and they all seemed to come from Poland. Again, this was a idea that uh, maybe they could stop this pipeline somehow before the last seventy five kilometers of pipe was laid. It was delayed for a year before that, and so they were happy about that, Poland and and, uh, Ukraine. But then uh, the Russians sent this uh, large pipeline ship over, and then they they finished it. So once it was finished, then the only alternative, if you're going to stop the pipeline, is to blow it up. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Jack Murphy, who is a, a former U.S. special operations soldier who's now an investigative journalist, published a really interesting piece last December in which he asserted that the CIA was using a European NATO allies spy service to conduct a covert sabotage campaign inside Russia and under the CIA's direction. And in that piece, Jack Murphy writes, quote, Years in the planning, the campaign is responsible for many of the unexplained explosions and other mishaps that have befallen the Russian military-industrial complex since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February. Murphy goes on to write, quote, while no American personnel are involved on the ground in Russia in the execution of these missions, agency paramilitary officers are commanding and controlling the operations, according to two former intelligence officials and a former military official. The paramilitary officers are assigned to the CIA's Special Activities Center, but detailed to the agency's European Mission Center, said the two former intelligence officials, using an allied intelligence service to give the CIA an added layer of plausible deniability was an essential factor in U.S. President Joe Biden's decision to approve the strikes, according to a former U.S. Special Operations official. Jim, I'm bringing this up because when this story came out, when Jack Murphy, who often has really good scoops from inside the military and the CIA, I started asking around with some of my sources in the U.S. intelligence community. I eventually was told, and I I, I think it's pretty credible, that the European NATO ally in question is Poland. Now, Jack Murphy ha- didn't name the nation, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that, that Murphy was writing about Poland. I bring this up because You just finished laying out why Poland would have a grand, not just geopolitical, but economic interest in uh, having the Nord Stream pipeline blown up literally the day after the thing, uh, you know, the thing gets gets hit. uh, They have a ribbon cutting ceremony. Poland has been the most aggressive in pushing for NATO ground troops or escalated action inside of Ukraine. We have what I think are pretty credible reports that Poland has been involved in some of the covert military actions that have been taking place inside of Russia to this date. And Poland also has its own quite sophisticated special operations forces that operated in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere and a very long relationship with the United States. I want to put to you something that I've been wondering about. Now, disclaimer, I don't have proof for this, but it's a theory that I'm working on. And that is that the U.S. was aware that Poland, and again, this is my theory, this is not an assertion of fact, but that the U.S. uh, was aware that Poland is doing these operations. Maybe the CIA was actually, as Jack Murphy reported, involved directly with uh, choosing targets and facilitating sabotage attacks against Russia. And the Poles and the Ukrainians start to talk about actually striking the Nord Stream pipeline. I, I realize you're saying that you don't buy Cy Hirsch's story on this, but is it plausible to you, knowing everything you know, all of the books you've written, all of the sources you've had over the years, that the United States was aware or helped in some way in this plot, but did not directly carry it out, and that a combination of Polish and Ukrainian forces blew up the Nord Stream pipeline 
with the knowledge and perhaps consent of the United States? You know, the CIA is a very bureaucratic place. I've been <laughs> writing about it and dealing with it and talking to people who've been there for years and years and years. I, I just can't imagine um, that if this ever went to the top levels of the of the CIA that uh, or to the um, you know office of uh, national intelligence, the director of national intelligence, that there be any any way that the U.S. would uh, approve taking part in any way blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline. That's just based on my background on dealing with this stuff for many decades um, and knowing the personalities of the people who are in there. But the scenario you, you just talked about in terms of having covert people in different countries, yeah, that's that has been going on for years and using allied services as covers and all those kind of things. So Everything that you mentioned, I would agree with, especially when it comes to Poland, who, you know, that I've been focused on in writing this article quite a bit. They also have undersea drones that are weaponized, so, and they're not very far from the, um, the pipelines. But uh, I would just stop one step short of having anybody officially approve of U.S. taking part in a sabotage operation involving a Russian pipeline, which is an act of war against Russia, uh, to um, the uh, uh, NATO countries and Europe, which is an act of war against NATO and, uh, and the European countries. If, in fact, Poland and Ukraine did blow up uh, or attack the Nord Stream pipeline, you would seriously question whether the United States was aware of such plans? I didn't say that. In my article, I actually uh, talk about that. I, what I'm saying is I don't think anybody would have approved any U.S. person Got it. taking part, either physically or in an approval sense of it. You know, what the Poles do with their own people or what the Ukrainians do, we, we can't control. That's their, their thing. In terms of what the U.S. knew about it, however, that's a different story, and that's an, another area I got into in my article. And there's these very secret organizations that the United States has that uh, hardly anybody ever heard of or knows about or whatever. One of those is called the Integrated Undersea Surveillance System. Years ago, I mean, during the Cold War, the United States had this, uh, I mean, it goes way back to at least the 60s or so forth, where we had this program of planting basically underwater microphones, hydrophones under the water in various choke po points around the world, uh, under the different oceans and seas and so forth. The whole idea was to, was to keep track of, of Russian submarines and Russian ships where they're going. So working secretly with the um, Swedish government, uh, the U.S. planted a lot of these uh, undersea hydrofoil, uh, hydrophones under the Baltic Sea. And uh, those are sitting down there, and what they do is they listen, and they're listening constantly. And what they listen for are the uh, movement of ships or submarines, anything, uh, even drones, undersea drones and so forth because each of them have a signature. They call it a fingerprint. I mean, it's basically like a fingerprint. I mean, each one is, is uh, individual to its own ship. So the U.S. has this enormous database of the sounds of ships all over the world, allied ships, Russian ships, Chinese ships, uh, all kinds of ships. 
so we have that database full of these uh, fingerprints of the movement or the, the sounds of uh, engines on ships. Now, in the Baltic, that's a very key area because it's where the Russians, they transfer a lot of their uh, naval forces across the Baltic. So we've always paid a lot of attention to that. And again, the Swedish uh, Navy helped the U.S. lay these undersea hydrophones. So when they pick up these sounds, they um, get transmitted almost in real time to a, another organization. It's called the Theater Undersea Surveillance Command Atlantic. There's a, also a Theater Undersea uh, Surveillance Command Pacific, and I, I think that's up in the state of Washington. But this one, the Theater Undersea Surveillance Command, is in Damneck, Virginia, the one in the Atlantic. So the sounds of these propellers and engine sounds from the ships get transferred there. And then they have this enormous database of, uh, in a sense, fingerprints of these ships. And so that's what they're able to do. So they're able to take all this data at you know a certain point of time, a certain day, on a certain time, they had this sound go near uh, Bornholm Island or whatever, and they should be able to tell exactly what that was, whether it was a Russian ship, and if it was, what kind of Russian ship, and even the name of the ship. So that's an extremely um, sophisticated system, and it's a system that would give the United States a lot of clues in terms of who was operating in that area around that time. Now, the United States has been very, very quiet about all this. I mean, they've said virtually nothing. It's, you know, their silence has been deafening. You know, it wouldn't be deafening in their sound if it was the Russians that did this. But they would be, and again, I don't think the U.S. did it. So if they're being very quiet and deafening and, and not saying a word about it, again, it, to me, it lends suspicion to one of our allies, and the two closest allies that would probably be doing this would be Ukraine and uh, and Poland. So here you have the United States with all this uh, technical capability to understand what ships and what uh, undersea uh, vehicles, whether submarines or, or undersea drones or whatever, happen to be operating around the uh, Nord Stream pipeline around the time it blew up. And it'd be very curious to find out which ships those were. The U.S. has indeed been quite uh, silent. In fact, the most substantive statements that we've heard uh, from the United States happened as a result of Cy Hirsch's story, where then you had U.S. officials building a sort of pyramid that ultimately led up to, we've had absolutely no involvement whatsoever in any effort to destroy or otherwise damage the Nord Stream pipeline. They basically had to make the most unequivocal, absolutely not possible. And they did that in increments after Hirsch's uh, piece came out. In fact, when I contacted the White House, they gave the most sweeping denial of any U.S. involvement whatsoever came after I pressed them on this because some of their earlier statements kept leaving doors open to a variety of interpretations. But what also happened soon after Cy Hirsch published his story was that this other narrative started to get floated in U.S. and German media. And this started on March 7th, when the New York Times and the German newspaper Die Zeit both published stories that indicated that a, quote, pro-Ukrainian group may have been involved with or behind the attack. The story in the New York Times said 
that U.S. intelligence sources were examining whether a pro-Ukrainian group carried out the attack. The German sourcing for the piece, the lead reporter was a a very experienced journalist named um, Holger Stark, was based on the German federal law enforcement investigation, not on intelligence sources. Both of those stories uh, that appeared in both the United States media and in the German media focused on the chartering of a private boat called the Andromeda that was chartered using a business uh, registered in Poland and reportedly owned by two Ukrainians. And the assertion is that this ship may have been involved with the operation in some capacity. Either it was the only vessel involved and that somehow they used equipment or divers to go down and plant explosives under the pipeline, or they were uh, in some sort of a support or joint capacity with liaising with other vessels that were doing this. A lot of the criticism, and you write about this in your piece in The Nation, Jim, a lot of the criticism or analysis surrounding the uh, Andromeda in the media after this had to do with whether or not divers would have been able to go off of this boat. You write that the speculation is almost exclusively focused on whether divers from the boat made dangerous and repeated dives 200 feet down to the pipeline to lay the several thousand pounds of explosives, a very unlikely scenario, especially without a decompression chamber. Instead, it would have been far more feasible to simply use a UUV controlled by a laptop such as the Remus 300 that the Ukrainians trained with. These were the one the, the equipment you were talking about earlier. It's listed as a two-man portable with a maximum depth of 1,000 feet and a mission duration of 30 hours. We've talked about the underwater capabilities that both the Poles and the Ukrainians have, but give your analysis of this story that emerged in the aftermath of Cy Hirsch's piece, some of the narratives surrounding it, and if you think it actually does have any connection to the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, the Andromeda ship that was chartered by a Polish-registered company owned reportedly by two Ukrainians. Yeah, one of the curious things about that, I think, was that in in one of the articles I read, it indicated that I think it was the Germans were actually originally tipped off about the ship from a Western intelligence source, being obviously the United States. At least I would assume that would be the Western intelligence source. Just to, to sp- specify what you're talking about here for people that don't follow this maybe at the level of uh, that you do or I do, um, this was in the summer prior to the September 26th explosions on the Nord Stream pipelines that German media reports, and also the Wall Street Journal reported this as well, that U.S. intelligence had started informing their German counterparts that they were essentially hearing chatter of a potential plot that was emerging involving some Ukrainian partisans to target the Nord Stream pipeline. This was a couple of months before the pipeline was ultimately destroyed. We understand the U.S. uh, intelligence was informing its German counterparts of some form of this intelligence. And I think that's where the original tip of this Andromeda came about. I mean, there's several things. The Andromeda doesn't have to necessarily be the exclusive ship. They could have had other boats uh, going along with it, a bigger boat. I mean, nobody knows, uh, you know, just because it was this one 50-foot yacht or whatever it was. uh, The focus all the time has been on this couldn't possibly have held all these divers on it and a decompression chamber and everything else from 
my argument all along has been they didn't use divers. Divers are just sort of crazy. You would just not use divers. You would use a drone, and that's what this two-man drone is. It's uh, the Remus 300. They trained on it. I've seen pictures of it in video. Two people can carry it. You just put it in the water. It's remotely controlled. You control it basically by a laptop, not much more than that. So that could easily have been done from the Andromeda. Um, but it doesn't necessarily eliminate the fact that there could have also been another one or two ships there. I mean, we don't know. That's the problem. That's why I mentioned that the U.S. has all this undersea listening capability, and it would be nice to know. I mean, one of the interesting things, if the Andromeda was using sails as opposed to its motor, then the U.S. probably wouldn't have been able to pick it up on their undersea uh, listening devices. If they were using a motor, they, they could probably pick up the sound and then they could fingerprint it because if they had the sound there, they could you know, run the engine later on and, and see if it matched uh, the fingerprint they had for it. Or they can uh, see if there were other ships around there at the same time. I want to also get your response to this. One of the New York Times reporters on that story that first started this discussion to be kicked off about a pro-Ukrainian group, Julian Barnes, when he was interviewed on the New York Times podcast, The Daily, he essentially said that it was the New York Times reporters who, quote, started asking a different question. Could this have been done by non-state actors? Hmm. Could this have been done by a group of individuals who were not working for a government. Kind of like freelance saboteurs. So where did you take this new question? Well, we started asking who might these saboteurs be, or if we couldn't answer that, who might they be aligned with, right? Could they be Mm -hmm. pro-Russian saboteurs? Could they be other saboteurs? And the more we talked to officials who had access to intelligence, the more we saw this theory gaining traction. You have this New York Times reporter essentially saying, we were the ones that started probing this, but that doesn't fit with the timeline that you and I are talking about with U.S. intelligence sharing information with the Germans but also the nuance of what the Times is saying versus what you're talking about right now, Jim, is that they're essentially saying that this could have been a group of private actors. And what you're talking about is the nation-state capabilities of Ukraine and Poland. Your response to that way the Times story unfolded and the way their reporters have characterized it. Yeah, I could see both things happening. I could see this sort of being a a semi-independent group, but I don't think this is a group acting independent of the Ukrainian government. I mean, another thing that came out in that same uh, batch of documents released uh, that the Washington Post uh, mentioned on Saturday, I think it was, uh, the leaked Pentagon papers, as we mentioned before, there was one uh, talking about Zelensky bringing up uh, the whole idea of blowing up a pipeline, that Druhaba pipeline. But there was also a report in in those uh, leaked intelligence documents that talked about conducting strikes in Russia. And they were talking about at the meeting in January, uh, for example, uh, I think it was Zelensky suggested that Ukraine uh, conduct strikes in Russia. Well, right after that, there were strikes in Russia. On April 2nd, 
there was a high-profile military blogger, uh, Madeline uh, Tarasky, who was assassinated with a, with a bomb-rigged sculpture in St. Petersburg. And then uh, there were two drones that did this sort of explosion on the top of the Kremlin. And then after that, there was another assassination uh, where the Zakhar Prilpin, who uh, was injured, he was a former member of the State Duma, he was another popular pro-war blogger, uh, and his driver was killed. Here you have, you know, Zelensky, or I guess one of his officials there, saying, uh, you know, maybe we could uh, uh, start conducting strikes in Russia. And that's in quotes, conduct strikes in Russia. And then all of a sudden, there are these strikes in Russia. So they could have these uh, these independent groups that maybe are associated with the uh, Ukrainian intelligence service, but they're not independent of the uh, Ukrainian intelligence service. They're working under orders or with the Ukrainian intelligence service. So I think that's how I would interpret that, what you mentioned before about uh, this sort of independent group. I don't think it's a group that nobody ever heard of uh, in Ukraine. I think it's a group that's either officially with uh, the Ukrainian government or unofficially with them, but they're with them. You know, I've been monitoring the way that this story is being covered in the Swedish and Danish media, as well as by open source researchers who specialize in finding Russian culpability in a variety of actions around the world. Let's just put it that way. It was very clear from the beginning, and especially when Cy Hirsch published his piece, that there was a certain sector of the world population, both governments and researchers, that were intent on proving that Russia did this. This is my analysis. This isn't a fact, but I'm just going to put this out there for you, Jim. Monitoring the way the narrative that exists in that sector of worldview that assumes Russia is behind almost everything, the way it's being portrayed in large Swedish media outlets is that Russia did this. And the same is true in a lot of the Danish media coverage, and it's certainly uh, the focus of open source researchers. But when you actually kind of look at what is fact versus what requires quite a large jump, it's a significant gap between what we can prove and the suspicions of a variety of people. And they're also contradicted by the Swedish prosecutor's statements, which has basically said, I don't really see evidence to suggest Russia did this. But this narrative is picking up steam, and there's real scrutiny now being done of the movement of Russian submarines and other ships. And so there's a sort of circumstantial evidentiary case that is taking on a sort of appearance of a true narrative. And I want to ask you about that phenomenon, that it seems as though there is a really intense effort to prove that Russia did this, whether Russia did it or not, by using marine traffic data and satellite data and evidence of Russian submarine and other ship movements in the Baltic Sea. How do you respond to people building a case off of that kind of data at certain points in time leading up to the strike on the pipeline and the way that the Russia did it industrial complex has sort of been rearing its head in this story? Um, well, look, I mean, you're going to get conspiracy theories going wild over everything. And I think that's basically what this is. I don't think there's any possibility that the Russians were involved in this. Obviously, you're going to see Russian submar submarines or Russian uh, ships in the 
Baltic Sea. I mean, <laughs> that's where uh, a lot of these are home ported. So uh, they're going to sail past Bornholm Island. I mean, you can't avoid it. The fact that there are two days before or something, there might have been a ship there. So what? What's that got to do with it? You need more evidence than that. I mean, do you have any quotes from Russian officials saying, we have to blow up this uh, pipeline? Do you have any Russians uh, writing in political magazines saying, we've got to get rid of this pipeline? There is so much evidence here that it points uh, away from Russia. Uh, I mean, look at Russiagate. I mean, Russiagate went on for two years. Uh, how much... Uh, Energy was spent on looking at Russians under every rock and never finding one. Look, uh, Russiagate shows you how this can spread because people are automatically suspicious of Russia. So, so they must have done it and they must have colluded with the Trump administration, except for the fact that two years later, you find out that they didn't collude with the Trump administration. So it's these Russophobia or whatever you want to call it that, uh, that gets out there and, uh, you know, catches on. You know, people that don't want to look at the facts and prefer to go with their um, suspicions or their prejudices. So to sum up, and I encourage people to actually read your piece, which, which makes a very detailed, precise argument for why Ukraine and Poland should be scrutinized. But to sum up, Jim, based on not, not just the, the research you've done on the Nord Stream explosions, but also your vast background and experience in studying U.S. intelligence, covert operations, what is your, your best theory as to what exactly happened here? Well, I think it was pretty much the way I laid it out here, that the two parties that had the most to gain by blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline uh, was Ukraine and Poland, and they didn't make any secret about it. Ukraine, they kept talking about how that was not only costing them money, but it was a cause for the uh, uh, getting Russia to take more aggressive actions against Ukraine. So the Ukrainians and the Poles had a very definite motive to get rid of the pipeline. Just knowing the United States intelligence bureaucracy and, and uh, just knowing how they work, I just don't see that they're involved in this, and I don't see the Russians are involved in this, and I don't think the Swedes or the Danish or uh, anybody else is involved in it. That's why I'm, I was focused on uh, Ukraine and Poland, and, and again, they uh, they have the means, the motive, and the opportunity, and, and uh, I think that's where the, the focus should be. You laid out the surveillance capabilities the U.S. has in the Baltic Sea. Based on your knowledge, though, of the intelligence uh, apparatus in the United States, do you believe that the Biden administration and the CIA know what happened there and who blew this up? Based on what I know about how the technical side of the intelligence community works, um, from satellites to undersea listing and, and so forth, as well as having human sources that, you know, are able to pick up a lot of intelligence, uh, yeah, I would think that the United States would certainly have 80% of the answer, if not 100% of the answer at this point. They certainly have far more probably than the uh, Scandinavian countries because, uh, you know, our intelligence is far more sophisticated, both the technical side. You know, we have geostationary satellites. Uh, we have satellites that orbit uh, every 90 minutes. We have undersea listening. So we, we have a lot of capability. In addition, we've got agents and uh, CIA has uh, intelligence officers and 
all these countries. Well, and we can vacuum up everyone's telecommunications and, and computer communications around the world. So, you know, it, it takes quite tight lips to never speak of such an action, especially if you are a quote unquote underdog country and you've just taken down a huge piece of Russian infrastructure. I would imagine that the NSA has picked up quite a bit of uh, communications, uh, it, possibly even from the individuals who did this strike. Well, we could see that. We could see that from what we were just talking about here, where we, I mean, this was obviously NSA SIGINT, uh, Signals Intelligence, that picked up Zelensky, I guess it was, uh, talking about blowing up this other pipeline. Uh, and you could tell that when you're reading these documents, because you see the code words, and the certain code words mean that it, it was picked up by intercepts. So you have that, and then you have the other intercepts we have about uh, launching operations in Russia and so forth. I mean, this obviously came from uh, from intercepts. So if we're able to pick up this, and the only reason we know about that is is because of the airmen who allegedly leaked it, and otherwise we wouldn't have even known that. So the, the question is, how much does the U.S. government have that we don't know about, and are we ever going to know about that? I mean, that's really the, the question. Well, that's why, you know, I... I was one of the first people to interview Edward Snowden in Moscow, and uh, uh, I had written three books on NSA, and I didn't even have a a hint at all the information that came out when, when he released those documents. So I can imagine how much information the U.S. has on this, because I don't think uh, Ukraine's probably that sophisticated in terms of uh, countermeasures when it comes to NSA SIGINT capabilities. Final question, uh, but it's the same one, but a different country. Do you believe Russia knows exactly what happened to its pipeline? I mean, first of all, Ukraine borders them. So they have a very good capability of eavesdropping on their communications. Plus, you know, they they occupied portions of Ukraine. So they had really a good opportunity to, to eavesdrop on Ukrainian communications. Plus, uh, there was probably a fair amount of human intelligence capabilities I think the the Russians probably, uh, I'd say they, there's probably about 80% chance they know who did it and, and, and why. Uh, they've been very cagey about this whole thing uh, from the beginning. They haven't really said anything, and uh, uh, that makes me even more suspicious that they know a little bit more than they uh, they do. Plus, they've, they have come out a number of times and, and uh, blamed... Ukraine for some of these assassinations and so forth, uh, the assassination of the daughter of the Russian uh, Alexander Dugan, his daughter was uh, assassinated and Ukrainians said we didn't have anything to do with it, but the United States basically said, oh, well, we, th we think you did have something to do with it. So if we could pick that up, I'm sure the Russians could pick it up and I'm sure the Russians know quite a bit about what the U.S. knows uh, also. One point of clarification, though, the Russians have endorsed Cy Hirsch's expose. Putin himself has mentioned it at the United Nations. The Russians introduced it into the Security Council and have been really, um, if you can say that they've had one main point about this, in recent months uh, and since Cy's expose or his, his article came out, Russia has quite publicly said that they believe that Cy Hirsch has revealed the uh, the perpetrator of the attack. It seems like you're saying that that would be potentially misdirection on the part of the Russians or opportunism uh, in, in, in sort of the portrayal of the war as being a NATO war against Russia in Ukraine. Well, of course. I mean, I've been following Russia for 
a long time. I've been there many, many times. And, and uh, yeah, this is pure propaganda for them. If they've got, you know, this uh, illustrious American reporter coming out, pointing the finger at the Biden administration, of course you're going to jump on it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's naturally a, uh, a, you know, a, a, a huge win for Russia in order to be able to point a finger of blame at the United States, have it come from a, you know, a well-known American reporter. So obviously that's what they're doing. I mean, I don't buy it for a minute. And I do think the Russians probably do know what really happened. And I think the Russians know that it wasn't the United States that did it. On that note, Jim Bamford, I want to thank you very much for joining us here on Intercepted. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on your show. James Bamford is a best-selling author, Emmy-nominated filmmaker, and winner of the National Magazine Award for reporting. His most recent book is Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. Make sure to check out Jim's recent piece in The Nation magazine. It's called The Nord Stream Explosions, New Revelations About Motive, Means, and Opportunity. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Olivares is the lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show. This episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you want to support our work, you can go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted and definitely do leave us a rating or a review. It helps other listeners to find us. If you want to give us feedback, feel free to send us an email at podcasts at theintercept.com. That's podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Scahill. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.